This episode is brought to you by Paraswap, the leading aggregator to find best prices across various DEXs. You'll hear more about them later in the show. Hey everyone, quick reminder, nothing said on Empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. This podcast is for informational purposes only and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Santiago and I and our guests may hold positions in the companies, funds, or projects discussed. Now, let's get into the show. All right, everyone, we have Chow and Imran from Alliance Dow, uh, two of... A, the top minds in crypto who have kind of a front row seat to the latest trends and developments in Web3, but also uh, two of my favorite people. They're back. Uh, we did an episode with them in January of this year, about six months ago, when they announced Alliance Dow's $50 million raise. For those of you who don't know Alliance Dow, they are the most powerful accelerator in crypto. Um, they've had, I might botch these numbers, but I think it's 80 plus startups, maybe 90 startups, over $13 billion in combined combined value go through their accelerator program. Uh, their DAO community has 120 mentors, over 400 network members. Ciao, Imran. Welcome to Empire, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah. How'd I do on that intro? Did we uh, did we get some of the numbers right? I have no idea. <laughs> With Chris, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know what the latest numbers is. Good. Good. We've had about 140 startups. Um, outside of that, uh, outside of that all of the other numbers were, were right. Amazing. Amazing. All right, guys. So here's what I want to do with this episode is I really want to give some advice to founders and builders as to how to handle the markets. Um, we're recording this on June 1st. The market is uh, what feels like we're maybe six months into a bear market. Uh, a lot of people are maybe saying, do we have three months to go? Do we have six months to go? Do we have 18 months to go? How should I, should I cut my burn like crazy? Should I do layoffs? Like how should I handle this market? And so I want to get your guys' feedback there. But before we get into that, I thought it would be helpful to just start with almost a state of the market to get your guys' viewpoints uh, as to where we are right now. So Chow, I think I'd throw this first question to you. Like what is your state of the market today? This is a very tough question. Because like, no, no, well, I think first of all, no one has a crystal ball as to where the market is going. But it's safe to say that um, this is the first cycle, crypto cycle, where um, our industry is um, very much uh, intertwined with the rest of the macro economy. So, you know, if the macro goes shit, you know, everything will trickle down into um, crypto from the public market, public stock markets. All the way down to public um, crypto markets, all, all the way down to venture markets, private markets, right? It's it's a snowball effect all the way down from from the top. So in that sense, it's very hard to predict. But you know, the advice that um, I see a lot of you know traditional uh, funds give to their startups, the consensus is that everyone should, um, all, I mean, all the founders should uh, tighten their belt, stay lean try to have, you know, at least a year or two worth of runway. Um, you know, in a market like this, I, I can't disagree with that advice. Like it's it's the prudent thing to do. Like I, I, I like to be contrarian, but for something like this, it's it does not make sense to, to be contrarian. Like it, if the market does not give you the opportunity to raise at a very favorable valuation over the next 12 months or so, uh, which is a big possibility, then you should try to stay in because startups are path dependent. If you die, you die. If you run out of money, you die. There's no way to come back. So 
I think it's prudent for founders to stay lean. Um, that said, the, the advice that I, I give to our founders is extremely case by case. It's specific to the situation of every startup because some startups have raised a ton of money. They have a ton of runway, um, which actually makes it a good opportunity to, to really go aggressive and to expand their market share in a market like this. Uh, because a lot of our competitors will give up, right? But there's other startups that haven't raised a lot of money that have like maybe six months of runway left, in which case it makes more sense to, to cut the fat and to stay lean. But the exact number of like when you, when you should start raising, how much you should start raising, how much you should cut, that kind of stuff is extremely case by case. I really hate to give like a generic advice to all the founders, but... Um, in general, that's that's how I think about this. Imran, I'm curious how you think because you and I have been like firefighting a lot for our founders, right? Like different different startups. But I'm curious what you think as well. Yeah, um, and it also a lot depends on what stage the founders are in, right? So if you're a pre-seed pre-idea uh, stage, then uh, ultimately you have a different set of parameters that you're dealing with. Whereas you have a founder, maybe you have a team that's built a product and is looking to get traction. And there's a different set of parameters that they have to deal with. So dealing with the first, which is a pre-seed, an idea phase, primarily speaking, founders are looking out, looking to go out and raise capital. Uh, they're looking to validate the community and, and et cetera. And what we found is that you know uh, investors are more diligent in regards to the type of idea they want back. Uh, they want to see some traction. They want to see an MVP. Uh, and they want to see how the founders think about hiring and recruiting as well in this in, in this landscape. So uh, investors and and every everyone around it are becoming more diligent in regards to how they should be backing these startups. The ones that have raised capital in the past and now are fire, firefighting. Um, with them, it's becoming much much harder to raise capital uh, at the at the valuations that they were looking at. In fact, some of the founders that that I've been working with have uh, brought their valuation down. Uh, by at least one order of magnitude, just so that they can close out the round and get the capital they need for the next two to three years. And in those cases, you know, I, what I tell founders is it isn't about, you know, uh, the valuation, it isn't about your ego, you just need to uh, raise the capital, close the round and get back to work. And that's what we've been telling founders on, on both, both of those stages. Yeah, go default alive, right? Instead of default dead. Chow, you mentioned one interesting point there, which is, um, uh, this is the first time that crypto has been so intertwined with with macro and just with the global macro markets. And one thing that comes to mind there is that uh, a lot of folks in crypto say this is just another cycle, right? Every couple of years we go through another cycle. Uh, but the 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 counter argument there is that this is actually the first time in history that crypto has been fighting the Fed and fighting the kind of global global macro markets, right? We've been right crypto since what January two thousand nine has been riding riding this like massive global macro bull market. And for the first time in history, we're going into what feels like a kind of global macro bear market. I don't know if it's a year long, two years long. I don't know if it looks like, you know, the uh, Great Depression or the uh, 2000.com bubble or the 2009 great, uh, great financial crisis, global financial crisis. I don't know what it looks like, but it does feel like macro is turning around. So Chow, does this make you think uh, differently about how this bear market could play out in terms of either the intensity or the duration of it? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a very strong likelihood that this is the last cycle um, in, in the traditional crypto cycle sense. 
Um, but but also like, do you even consider this one as a full cycle? Because um, last cycle we went from uh, like around um, was it twelve hundred to twenty thousand, right? So like call it like twenty x. Whereas this cycle we went from twenty thousand to sixty thousand. It says three x. Like the magnitude of increase is much smaller than the last cycle. Do you even call this a cycle, right? So um, maybe the cycle hasn't ended. Maybe this is the last cycle. Maybe this was not a cycle at all, right? Um, I think going forward, it, it's very likely that you know crypto is going to trade like Nasdaq, uh, probably with a lot of alpha still, like a, a lot of uh, potential outperformance compared to alpha, uh, compared to Nasdaq, but. Cycle-wise, it's quite likely to to trade alongside the rest of the risk um, risk assets. Does that make crypto less exciting from an investment perspective? Um, so, I mean, if we use the language of uh, traditional finance, like beta versus alpha, the beta is yes, beta has become a lot less exciting and a lot less predictable, right? Like that, the last few cycles were actually fairly predictable, at least in hindsight, like. Every single one of the past cycles were we had a um, blow off top. <laughs> These things are are extremely predictable if you study like history of markets, right? Um, so the, the beta was very predictable, was very uh, uh, large in magnitude. Uh, whereas this current cycle and going forward, beta is a lot less exciting. But the alpha is still there. Like unless you think that there's no more growth, no more new innovation in crypto. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of opportunities for investors to pick uh, out, outperforming assets uh, in this um, in this uh, market. Imran, do you look at it the same way? Kind of minimizing cycles as time goes on, um, and that each maybe cycle is less uh, violent uh, than than the last one, or. Do you agree with Chow that maybe this is the last cycle? What, what's your view on this? I think you know we're part. I, I agree with Chow. Um, but I also think that we're, you know, we're uh, for every cycle that we go through, we are bringing more and more participants into the ecosystem, and which would make it, you know, less and less volatile over a fixed period of time. And so I do think we're in a phase right now where we're growing up, uh, especially given the fact that you know institutions are thinking about crypto as a part of their uh, investment strategy, uh, product strategy. And then even thinking about like where they will exist in the next decade, two decades. So we're starting to see that already. And so I, I do think we're at a period where crypto is growing up and a lot of it's going to start to correlate with like traditional markets. But I also think that, you know, um, just because we're growing up doesn't mean that there is an opportunity for growth. Uh, and I do think there are still incredible startups that are being built right now that will ultimately um, take people off guard. Um, we could talk about, you know, Stepin and, and others that have really came out of nowhere and started to, uh, you know, build partnerships with large like shoe brands. And I think we're going to see many, many uh, use cases like that that will come really out of the left field and will start to kind of grow tremendously. So I do think there's a lot of opportunities to the left in the market. Starting to get into the, the founder advice type of things, uh, side of things, how do you advise folks who are maybe on the earlier stage, let's say 10, 15, 20 employees right now who are thinking about maybe launching a new product, yeah. maybe thinking about releasing their token. Like, do you, do you pull back? Do you pause right now? Or do you actually just continue forward? This is probably uh, the best time to launch a token or a product. Uh, 
Um, there's a lot of noise during the bull market where you confuse, you know, token price with the traction of a company. Um, and you've seen this happen, you know, many, many times throughout the, this last bull cycle. And when, and when, uh, when things like when reality hits for these startups and they, and people, the community start to see what really the startup is, the token price ends up going down. There's no product traction. And then there's a lot of, uh, pointing fingers at like different influencers and community members on why they bought the token or may have used the product. So there's a lot of confusion that ends up happening. So what we always tell founders is in fact that this is probably the best time to build a product. And um, this is probably the best time to launch as well because you get to actually get the real metrics in regards to the product that you're building and start to get like tighter feedback loops and then start to grow from there. Uh, and so, in fact, I always tell founders, this is probably the best time to launch products. You had this post back in March, uh, March of 2022, about three months ago, talking about customer acquisition cost and why merging in investors and customers into one group is, I think you put it like it's akin to customer acquisition cost, CAC on leverage. Can you just kind of expand on these thoughts as, as we start to talk about kind of, I want to talk about token vesting, composability, partnerships. And I think one good place to start is just customer acquisition cost uh, as we head into a market where maybe it's a little tougher to acquire customers than in the past. Yeah. Um, customer acquisition cost is you know, in the, in the web two space is ultimately you set aside a budget and you use that budget as a way to use Facebook ads, you use Twitter ads, and you try to get customers to start to use your product. It's like a, a, a recruiting funnel for, for customers. And, uh, in the web three standpoint, you know, we don't really, we can't really advertise on Twitter or Facebook because, you know, ultimately you have to be crypt, uh, crypto native. And so token ends up becoming this kind of customer acquisition strategy where you're able to attract your early customers, your early investors, believe in your product, that use your product, then ultimately, you know, how the goal is to hope to make them, you know, wealthy or, or better off by using the product. But the problem with this is that, you know, um, as I mentioned before, this is like CAC on leverage, which is like, it's a great way to attract com uh, customers and investors to back your, your startup, but it also could hurt them because if the product isn't sustainable or what you're building isn't working, um, you could have the opposite effect. Um, you know, case in point is Luna, right? Um, people were very excited about, you know, the decentralized stablecoin. Uh, but when the product didn't end up working out the way it should have, you know, all the people that invested or believed in the product ended up getting hurt. Uh, and so CAC is a very important tool for crypto startups. But what we advise our startups is um, don't use token, don't launch a token or don't use a token as a way to attract users early on. What you want to do is you want to use your product. Your product should be your go-to-market strategy and, and it should be a foundational layer for your community. Because without product or traction, the token in itself is just going to create more noise in both directions in a very wrong way. Uh, and so I'll point to a case study, um, DYDX. Um, they launched, they started back in 2016 or 2017. They ended up releasing their product around 2018. And Around 2020 or 2021, they launched a token. Uh, I think 2021. So it took them like four years before they even launched a token. And by then, they were already like all, uh, very close to being competitive Uniswap in terms of trading volume. Then they dropped the token and they surpassed Uniswap. And so token should be used 
as a way to double down on your growth strategy. It shouldn't be your only growth strategy. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think you've seen a lot of the layer twos do this as well, right? Look at someone like Optimism. Optimism built an incredible product. And then and say a lot of the layer two, a lot of the scaling solutions have done the same thing, right? They didn't actually launch a token. They built a product that people love and that people actually use. And then they're releasing a token. Um, Chow, how do you think about when is the right time to do a DAO? And I think maybe it'd be interesting to look at some of the numbers of Alliance DAO if you just know anything off the top of your head, like how many of the port codes, if you if you have 100 port codes uh, or 50 port codes in the new in the new co cohort, or I don't know how many are in the new co cohort, how many are structured like a DAO from day one? Um, and do you think that those numbers are right? Like should people, should founders think about uh, structuring as a DAO from day one? Is it structured as a DAO, but don't actually be too decentralized? Like, how do you think about that right now? Um, I, I think we, uh, we might've talked about this in our la last time I, I came on here, but uh, my view hasn't changed is, um, don't, don't, don't do a DAO. Don't do a DAO initially. Um, <laughs> said, said from Alliance DAO. Come yeah. <laughs> um, we, I mean, we, we were not a, like Alliance DAO, we're not about two years ago when we first started. We talked about it yeah. and we knew that it was going to be very difficult. And even today, even, even though we're called Alliance DAO, um, a lot of our uh, internal you know, uh, uh, governance or decision-making or interactions between the various members uh, like, does not follow like, what you typically see on those like, you know, governance forums which I believe is um, extremely inefficient for, and it just totally uh, nonsensical for the vast majority of, of uh, products. Um, I think DAOs could make sense for a very small category of uh, products, which are, um, I guess, uh, some sort of fairly low level protocols. All right, everyone, quick break from the show to share a big update from our friends at Paraswap, the best platform to stake, swap, trade, farm, and more. Paraswap just launched gas refunds. Based on how much you stake, you can now get up to 100% of your gas refunded on all of your swaps on Paraswap. This is huge. For anyone who has spent a lot of time in DeFi, or maybe it's just starting out, you know how egregiously expensive the gas transactions can get. The gas fees are ridiculous at some points in time, and now you can get those entirely refunded on Paraswap. To participate, all you need to do is stake a minimum of 500 PSP. Big shout out to the Paraswap DAO for making these refunds possible. Really, it's just, it's tough to beat Paraswap right now. They give you the best prices, uh, they save you money. You've got this gas refund if you stake PSP. They've got a smooth and really user-friendly interface, fast swapping. It's really everything that you'd want from a DeFi platform. If you don't use them already, check out Paraswap today at paraswap.io. Now let's get back to the show. Why do we even need DAOs, I guess, in the first place if all of this is kind of just going back to what something like a board of directors looks like where you've got people who vote on a board and then the board makes decisions at the company, like very high level decisions at the company, usually capital allocation, large capital allocation decisions. And then you've got a bunch of teams like a VP of marketing, a VP of sales, a VP of engineering who just actually execute everything. Uh, it seems like that model is actually working pretty well right now. And it seems like that's where your thesis on where DAOs go back to. So, uh, but, on the, but on the other end, I've, I hear you saying like DAOs one day will have 
a trillion dollars of capital uh, in their treasuries. So obviously, you're quite optimistic about DAOs. Mm -hmm. So the question is, why do we even need DAOs if, if the traditional company structure works so well? If it works so well, yeah. yeah. Um, there, there's a couple of uh, um, reasons. Um, one is um, DAOs are digitally native and borderless. Um, starting a company that is borderless and transnational is extremely difficult when you work with multiple jurisdictions at the same time. Um, so, so DAOs remove that barrier. Um, two is imagine, you know, in the early days of Uber, if Uber wanted to incentivize its drivers with uh, Uber equity, right? It was not possible because you would have to ask like 10,000 like Uber drivers to sign paperwork. Imagine the, the amount of um, legal, legal friction behind that. So DAOs uh, remove that kind of legal friction as well in terms of incentivizing early um, contributors. So basically the, the point of DAOs um, is actually very analogous to, to NFTs to, to like, the, the point of DAOs is to remove frictions associated with traditional legal framework, right? Like people also talk about NFTs as uh, digital native uh, intellectual property, right? Which completely removes the traditional legal framework from it. And that, that possibly enables a bunch of new use cases. So that is fundamentally the, 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 um, uh, the value proposition of DAOs compared to traditional companies. Imran, when, if a founder comes to you today and says, look, we've got four people right now. We've got this amazing idea. We've got our MVP built out. We just raised our seed, million dollar seed, and we're a DAO. What's your advice to them? Uh, my biggest advice is build a, uh, build a product and build a, an early community around the product. It's the same advice I, I give about the token as well, uh, if a startup was to announce a token. Because there's no point in building um, a, a community without a, without a product that community is attracted to. It, the product could be anything, right? But if there isn't like early traction in regards to why communities are coming together for a, for a certain reason, there's, there's no point in building a DAO, um, is my number one like response to what I hear. Uh, and so what I tell founders early on is like build out the product, find out who your first users are and double down on those users by building more and more, uh, you know, set of products that allows them to attract even a larger community. And then from that community, you can start to think about ways to decentralize certain operations in a way that can be very scalable for, for the founder and the startup itself. I'll talk about MakerDAO actually. MakerDAO first started off as a DAO. They attracted incredible amount of talent and they realized that, um, you know, they can't continue to scale or grow uh, without being centralized. So they announced the product back uh, in 2018. And then they also called out to become a foundation. They want to revert back to becoming a foundation. So they put a vote out and they brought everyone back in from a DAO to a centralized organization. And from 2018 to 2021, they built out this incredible growth marketing strategy where their biggest goal was to integrate DAI into as many protocols as possible. So if you look at their grow-to-market team or their marketing team, they had maybe like, I don't know, 20, 25 people. Um, once they felt like they've hit critical mass, they put out another vote and they became, they killed the foundation and they became a DAO. So all of the like marketing teams and, and the business teams and the risk team, they ended up becoming sub-DAOs. Uh, or DAOs, 
with its own branding, nothing associated with MakerDAO. And now, like, all of those teams are running very, very efficiently because they have a very clear protocol on how to, uh, how to propose vote changes into MakerDAO and how that should be run moving forward. And so, and, and it took, Make, MakerDAO launched in 2014. Like, their, uh, their white paper launched in 2014. And now, coming up to almost 2022, they just became a DAO again. So, like I said, like, you can't just go out, raise money and become a DAO. It just doesn't work that way. You have to build a product. You have to build an incredible engine that allows you to support the DAO, support the product over a long period of time, build a long-term sustainable community that loves the product and that will do anything to get up in the morning and build on the product. And then over time, you let it go and you allow the community to take over and allow them to kind of think about what they think the product should be moving forward. Does this change how you think about growing and scaling a team? And maybe just a broader question is like, how is growing and scaling a team in Web 2 different than Web 3? Um, yeah, it does, actually. Um, like even for us, um, the way we're thinking about building our team, it's very lean. Um, you know, 20 and 30 people max is the way we're thinking about it. Because ultimately, what you want to think about is where can certain parts of our uh, business units could be scaled through community um, is the way we think about it. So ultimately, um, in order for us to bu build the best talent pool, we have to bring on the best people that are in, like ultimately uh, founders because founders or ex-founders or like incredible business leaders uh, can navigate through ambiguity. And so if you look at like even Alliance now, I'd say almost, you know, 80, 90% of our team is are, were former founders. Uh, and we did that purposefully because ultimately we're founders. We're all going to end up, you know, taking on certain uh, business units and then ultimately like driving that initiative moving forward. Uh, and so you'll see uh, our organization, you'll probably see like a hierarchy. And in, in this hierarchy, you'll see like, you know, let's say five subunits. And it could be business, go to market, product, engineering, uh, and let's say risk or marketing or regu uh, regulations. And the subunits will ultimately be closed to begin with. But I could see the, our DAO opening up a bit to the community where some of the people that want to contribute to any of these subunits can work with the business leaders to do so. And that kind of opens up the community as a way for us to uh, in, uh, hire some of the best talent that's coming out of the space. Um, and we think by having a semi-open like uh, talent pool or community engagement uh, funnel, this gives us a really good ability to think about what does decentralization looks like over time. Um, but I would say in the short to medium term, we're going to be closed. And in the long term, we'll be probably a bit open to the... There, there's a specific um, type of DAOs. Uh, it just occurred occur to me. Uh, there's a specific type of DAOs for which a DAO structure could make a lot of sense from the get-go, uh, which is... Uh, I tweeted about this uh, a few weeks ago. It, it's, uh, it's basically sort of an um, incubator of uh, creators. So it's basically like Alliance style or Y Combinator for creators, for extremely high risk, high reward kind of professionals. Um, and so it could be like YouTube, TikTok creators. It could be like people doing extremely creative work, uh, like, uh, uh, like chefs. It could be pro gamers, right? Like, you know, pro gamers could make a lot of money, but the, the career risk is also extremely high. Um, 
there's a lot of examples of uh, musicians, for example, uh, like a DAO for musicians that could also make sense. And basically the DAO would have three roles. Um, the first role is to uh, scout and to pick and to invest in these um, like super high potential uh, creators. The second role is to build tools to, to support them. Um, and the third uh, role is to market uh, these uh, creators to the outside world. And the reason why a DAO could make a lot of sense for these is because these DAOs are basically, they should be compo uh, composed of uh, other people, successful people who have been in the industry. So for instance, um, it could be, the DAO could be formed by a bunch of very successful YouTube creators or musicians um, or pro gamers. And what they would do initially is they would vote on, uh, you know, uh, uh, new creators that they would they would want to bring into to the DAO. This is this is one of the key differences between you know these creator DAOs versus a startup incubator DAOs like ours is because for something like like us Alliance DAO we need to be extremely contrarian. We cannot let the entire DAO vote on every single startup. It's never going to work. However, for something like creators, those professionals tend to know who else have the potential to become just like them. Right, so in that sense, voting actually makes a lot of sense for these DAOs. So, uh, like this is actually analogous to uh, like this idea of a token uh, token curated registry, which which was one of the biggest ideas in 2018, and uh, people started surfacing the, the the idea again. But it, it's basically that, like you have token token register re, uh, token curated registry is basically a DAO that votes on the list, any any generic list, right? And in this specific example of creator DAOs, they vote on a list of other creators. Um, so I, I'm I'm truly excited about about this uh, this particular sector. Like in fact, in, in this in the current Alliance DAO cohort, we have at least three startups that build um, you know alongside this this uh, thesis, um, and, and they're they're starting off as DAOs basically. Yeah, Chow, I remember the uh, token token curated registry thesis. And I remember, I, I mean, isn't that what you were working on at Masari, right? I remember yeah. you and Selkis writing about the token curated registry back in like 2018. So yeah. one narrative that was really, really hot last year was the the L1 thesis, right? And it started to cool down and gave way to some, some other narratives uh, like scaling and layer twos and things like that. What uh, we talk a lot about just like different L1s on Empire and from maybe more of the investment investment lens. But I'm curious, as you guys see so many companies that are actually building uh, and making these decisions to build on different L1s, what what are the factors that go into advising builders on which L1 and really which tech stack to build on? Like, what are you hearing from founders today? How has this changed over the last few months as maybe Soul uh, keeps having downtime, launch of subnets, uh, layer two releases, things like that? Yeah. Um, ultimately, like... Um they're going to be every layer one and layer two has its own community and has its own products. Um, and what I tell founders is um, look at the, the communities and products that are being built and look at the tech in the background to see if this is something that's going to align with where you see your company in the next two to five years. Um, and, and so like, if you look at Solana, you think about, you know, gaming and NFTs. When you think about Ethereum, you think about, you know, pretty much the sandbox for all of creativity, right? Whether it's DeFi, NFTs, uh, music NFTs, etc. Uh, when you think about Avalanche, you think about gaming. 
when you think about like Arbitrum and Optimism, you think about, you know, doubling down on your growth within Ethereum and the community that has been built over time. So I think for the most part, everyone is in the business of selling block space. And the question then becomes is like, what types of communities do you want to compose with? What types of products do you want to work and align with is the way to think about this. Uh, and so what I would tell founders is uh, take a step back and, you know, take the tribalism out of the picture and think about what, what do you need fundamentally in order for you to scale your company from zero to 100. Um, if, you're, if you're looking for like transaction throughput and you're looking for, you know, let's say zero knowledge proofs as a way to obfuscate, uh, you know, certain types of data, then go with Starkware. Um, so I always leave that up to the founder uh, because the founder ultimately has to decide what type is going to work best for them. Uh, but I lay out all of the options and I let the founder decide like, you know, what types of communities uh, or companies they want to align with in the, in the long run. So um, uh, objectively, based on the, you know, two to 3,000 startups that we're seeing on, a, on an annual basis, um, by far the top three uh, layer ones, or I should say like uh, ecosystems are, uh, in no particular order, Solana, Polygon, and Avalanche um, right now. Probably probably Solana and Polygon are top two. Avalanche is is growing. Over the past few weeks, I would say Avalanche is growing faster just because they started at a much lower starting point. Um, and the, the, like the specific advice I give to founders, again, this is going to piss off a lot of people, but uh, the, the advice I, I give to founders uh, evolves a lot over time. Like a year ago, I would have said to founders, you know, Solana is up and coming. There is a huge opportunity for a land grab. Basically anything that, that has been proven to, to work on Ethereum, um, <laughs> they're obviously going to work on, on Solana. Um, my advice is different now uh, because uh, it's a little bit more saturated on Solana. Um, the specific advice I give to founders right now is the following. It's probably to start building on Avalanche. And, and by the way, I have, we have zero, like, I have zero conflict of interest with Avalanche. I don't, I don't, I don't own AVAX or whatever. This is just the advice I give to our founders. Um, start building on Avalanche. And the reason for that is uh, it's, it's up and coming. It's fairly new. And if one day Avalanche runs into similar problems as Solana and Polygon, which you know, you know they, they uh, both um, uh, layers uh, run into bottlenecks and went down quite a few times uh, over the past uh, few months, um, is that even even if Avalanche uh, runs into those problems, because it's EVM compatible, you, you're going to have a lot of options um, to uh, migrate onto other. EVM chains with minimal uh, amount of migration work. So it gives you more flexibility, more optionality. This is the specific advice to I give to, to founders currently. Um, mm. The best alternative to Avalanche might be, you know, uh, Ethereum layer two. They're, they're slightly less battle tested in my opinion, but they're also up and coming. So Arbitrum, Optimism are probably also good um, options. So th that is a very uh, uh, politically incorrect <laughs> advice I, I give to our <laughs> founders. 
Yeah, we'll see how this one uh, see how this one does on Twitter. Ciao. Um, do you think that capital starts flowing back from some of the L ones back over to Ethereum as the as these layer twos get built out and as these layer twos start to launch tokens? And uh, it feels like the narrative is really with the ETH layer twos right now. But yeah. Optimism, Ar Arbitrum, will capital and by capital I mean like money, but also human capital and talent will that start flowing back to L twos? Uh, as the maybe mar bear market takes some of these alt L1s down 90 to 95%. Um, does that drive the demand for some of these uh, just back back to the, like the quote unquote main chain, back to Ethereum and the L2s? I'm not really seeing that in, in terms of talent. So there's still a lot of talent going into Solana. There's still a lot of talent going into uh, non-Ethereum, non-Ethereum L2 chains. Um, so I'm, I'm not really seeing that in, in the very early stage uh, startup. However, the public market is clearly, you know, showing signs of that, right? Um, I don't know if that will have an effect that, that will trickle down into the private market. Maybe, maybe not. But like, yeah, of course, this year is, is the year of Ethereum. <laughs> it's the merge and all the L2s launching, right? Um, but yeah, that, that's just the, the, the public market. Imran, what, what are you seeing? Because we see different things. Yeah, like I think the pendulum is swinging, right? Um, so you know, like a couple of years ago, it would have been only ETH only, right? And because of like scaling and, you know, scaling issues and not being able to get transactions through and or the gas fees, founders started to go towards, you know, other alt layer ones. Uh, and now I think what's happening on the alt layer one side is that they're being battle tested as we speak. Some are going down, some aren't, some are experiencing high gas fees and et cetera. So we're starting to see the pendulum swing back into layer twos uh, and like other like interesting solutions. And with the upcoming like merge and like, you know, move to ETH2, there's a lot of momentum going back into ETH. And I think the pendulum is going to continue to swing back and forth until all of these products, all of these layer ones are somewhat battle tested, are able to uh, take on more and more users. And, and so I think this is just going to continue to happen uh, over the next couple of cycles until all of the alt layer ones and Ethereum with uh, E2 being scaled out. I think that's what's going to continue to happen. Because if you think about it, like if you want to replicate all of the internet, all of the work that's happening on the internet today onto on crypto, on blockchains, you'll need more than one layer one to uh, take on all the transactions that are happening. And so I do believe in the long run, you know, we will live in a multi-chain world. Uh, the question is, how long will it take us to get there? And, you know, what layer ones are going to be ready to take on the influx of, the influx of builders as they're looking to build their next product? Let me switch gears a little bit and go back to thinking about just the next 12 months for builders and maybe give them a little bit of advice. Uh, I know just reading a lot of the kind of web two VCs, a lot of their pieces to founders, they're really focused on the metrics, right? Focused on ARR, CAC, uh, LTV of a user, gross margin, uh, free cash flows. What are the metrics that you look for in a web three business? Is it uh, like total value locked? Is it the trying to look at like the, what the company does their core competency, for example, Aves might be lending. So you try to figure out the core co the core metric for lending, maybe loan utilization rate. Like, what is what are the core metrics that you're looking at and, and telling uh, founders to optimize for over the next twelve months? But really, just in the course of their uh, building career. 
I would say, uh, it, it, one, it depends on what product you're building, right? If you're thinking about DeFi, you know, I, I think total value locked is a very bad uh, metric because, you know, a lot of it is incentivized through tokens, uh, token incentivization. So the liquidity isn't really sticky, right? It's there, but, you know, it could leave in a heartbeat. So what we look for there is just like actual transactions. What's happening within a DeFi protocol? Are they using it as a product to trade? Are they using it as a way to... Um, there's some like metrics that we like track within DeFi protocols that allows us to think, well, oh, okay, so that is like actual, you know, crypto native usage that we're looking for. Uh, so for like an example of Uniswap or Aave could be, you know, how much borrow for Aave could be like, how much has, how much collateral has been collateralized and how much is being borrowed, borrowed against. And at, a at certain types of reflexivity within the markets, what happens to Aave and the users of Aave? Same thing with MakerDAO, uh, I say even with Uniswap, you know, how much transaction volume is happening um, and how is that consistent over a fixed period of time? Um, even DYDX and, and others. So for DeFi, I would say like transaction volume, I would say lending, like what, what are the actual metrics within lending, et cetera. Now looking at like games and things like that, I would say, you know, a good metric for games is how many monthly active users are are using the product itself. So, and that's pretty easy to capture for like Axie Infinity and, and others. So monthly active users, daily active users, how long are the users staying around for? How often are they playing the game, et cetera. Um, and I think that's gonna hold true for many of the other products that are gonna be in this, like that are building space. For NFTs, as an example, is like, uh, if you're building a marketplace, then how much of the fees are being captured? How much of the trading volume are you tracking, et cetera. Uh, and so I would say like uh, what's probably like common across all that, all of the, the sectors I mentioned is like transaction volume, uh, how much of the transactions are going through and hitting and how much of the platform is capturing that, that volume, whether it's through fees or it's through engagement. Chad, is there one, one metric or two metrics that you look for when you're talking to founders? So we work primarily with super early stage startups. So there is no metrics. There's no metrics that really matter. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but depending on, on the product, the, the one thing, the one question I tend to ask founders is uh, how many potential customers have you spoken with? Th that question alone tells me a lot about how the founder thinks about um, market, thinks about product building. Yeah. yeah um, if you're building a tool for DAOs, how many DAOs have you gone out and spoken with? Exactly. Yeah. And, and what did you learn from those conversations? Uh, I like founders who have some very unique insights that I've, I've never heard of before. Um, that, that, that can teach me something. Is there any other kind of just big advice as we start to think about wrapping this, this up, is there any other big advice that we're missing here? Um, whether it relates to composability, security, regulation, token vesting, anything else that you feel is just really, really crucial for founders to know and for founders to be thinking about right now. And maybe Imran, I'd throw this to you first and then Chow, I'll toss it to you. Yeah. Um, there's just, there's just a lot of noise in crypto and people often forget like what they're really set out to do, which is build a great product for people. Um, you know, some people get very lost in, on the token side and why they should launch a token. Tokenomics has become an important topic for a lot of founders and why they need to get it right. Um, and to be quite honest, like, I don't think we have a tokenomics that's actually worked well yet. Uh, for the protocol, for the users itself. We're still in this ambiguity phase of like a governance token, how does the token capture value, et cetera. So I don't think 
no one has really like found the right answer to that yet. Uh, and I would say also like regulations has also stopped a lot of founders from building product. And and what I and what we tell what we advise our founders is think about like regulations as a part of finding product market fit, which is um, understand the regulatory landscape or the regimes that you're operating in, and find ways to build something that's going to align with those regimes in the long run. Because the last thing you want to do is think about you know the regulators knocking on your door as you're looking to build out product. So. So just to sum up the three things that I would advise founders moving forward is one is uh, don't worry about, build a product. Don't worry about the noise in crypto, build a product that will attract your first users. Tokenomics is not something you need to worry about today. Um, and number three is think about regulations and think about it very importantly as part of your product market fit. Uh, and those are probably the three things I would advise every founder. Yeah, I, I agree with those points. Um, the, especially the the token economics part. I you know I, I've been saying for years don't don't worry about token economics until you have product market fit. And I think people finally are realizing that. Um, so it's it's the industry is is ha, you know have realized that you know it's um, probably a, a good idea to to build a product that people love first before playing these uh, token games. Um, so I, I like I like to see that, but. Uh, something that, that came up recently in our founders forum is that someone asked about, um, you know, community management. Um, I, I think this is a topic that confuses a lot of founders. And uh, like every week, so we do like gr uh, group office hours weekly on a weekly basis uh, with our founders. Uh, this is a topic that would come up like every other week. Like, how do we do community management? What are some of the metrics that, that matter? Um, how do you think about community? So I have a few very strong opinions here. Uh, number one is I think the vast majority of crypto products are not doing community right. Uh, every Discord that, that I go into, it's filled with bag holders and you know people talking about price and market. Th that kind of stuff just does not add any value to the product that you're building and is often very distractive to founders. Like I, I've had founders ask me like, you know, in my Discord, there is so much FUD, like when the price goes down, how do I handle these, right? It's so distracting these, these um, you know, uh, people in your Discord that um, are not users of your product. So I actually wrote about this uh, a couple months ago. The, the, the way, the main thing to think, the, the main way to think about community is is to think of the community first and foremost as your user base. Your Discord should be your potential users, not the backholders. And the way you interact with your community is to seek um, product feedback from them, is to give them product updates, uh, ask them to try a new feature and give you uh, feedback on, on you know, how to improve. Um, that is the best way to engage the community while building a great product. Um, so this is something I tell founders all the time. Um, there, there's also a very uh, basic mistake that, that a lot of founders make is they're too obsessed with numbers such as um, number of Discord, number of people in your Discord, number of Twitter followers. These are some of the worst vanity metrics. They don't mean anything. So I, I ask founders to ignore those numbers um, because um, oftentimes quality matters more than quantity. Uh, if you have like 100 people in your Discord who love your product, who 
constantly give you product feedback who are um, uh, you know, net promoters of your product to their friends. Uh, these matters a lot more than the actual total number of, of people in Discord and, and Telegram and on Twitter or whatever. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, we, uh, we did something new at Permissionless this year, which is we launched uh, our VIP tickets were these things called Permies, which was a collection of 555 NFTs. And there's a private Discord channel just for the Permi holders. That's token gated, right? You can get in if you own a Permi. And after the conference, they basically self-organized, created a spreadsheet of all the feedback that they have for the conference. Then they turned that spreadsheet into a Google form. All the 500 Permies voted on invite, uh, on on feedback for the conference. And then they sent it over in an organized fashion to our block, the Blockworks events team. And this was just like, I couldn't have orchestrated a better customer feedback thing. Uh, so that was really, really cool to see. And then they also got uh, early access and free access to our research product. And now they're starting to give us feedback on the research product. So it's been really cool to see uh, that happen. So I completely agree with you. A couple of rapid fire questions here as we wrap it up, not related to founders. Um, Jim Chanos just said Coinbase is tremendously overvalued as the fee feast is set to end. Chow, I'd throw this to you. Coinbase, overvalued or undervalued? I, I, I tweeted that, that I bought Coinbase last week uh, at around $50. I don't know where it is now. It's probably up a lot. And uh, the yeah. day, by the way, the day after Paradigm announced that, or not announced, but I guess it was an SEC filing, um, that they bought a, like 20 or $40 million worth of uh, Coinbase stocks. Um, is 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 it overvalued now? Is it undervalued or overvalued now? It's probably still undervalued. <laughs> like I, I don't know what the market market cap is now, but like a few a few years from now, the venture book of Coinbase is going to be worth more than their total market cap now. I would have to agree. And also, it's super funny that 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 Coinbase bonds um, fell to like fifty cents to the on the dollar. Uh, like you have to assume that there's a 50% chance that, that Coinbase is going, is going bankrupt over the next like 10 years, which is the expiration um, date uh, of the bond, which is a ridiculous assumption, right? Yeah, I would, ha I would have to agree with you there. Imran, uh, prediction here, Robinhood acquired or not acquired by end of year? Acquired. Um, and I say this because... Um, there's there's some interesting dynamics that are happening in space right now, right? Um, Robin, uh, so Sam with FTX uh, acquired Blockfolio, looking to get you know access to you know end users that are going to ultimately tap into FTX like trading engine. Uh, what's also interesting is that um, uh, Sam just recently acquired like seven or eight percent of Robinhood, um, right after the market like took a downturn. Uh, in the same, in parallel to that, you know, Robinhood announced its own MetaMask competitor, uh, and so what we're starting to see is this shift, right? Which is like, who can come in? Who can take whose market share? Sam is going after the traditional markets uh, where Robinhood is in today, and Robinhood is trying to get into crypto by going after you know more of the crypto native uh, companies like Coinbase and and FTX. Uh, I do think though, like my, this is my personal opinion that Robinhood will probably fail. Um, and in that time, you know, I think Sam will probably have a sizable chunk of Robinhood. Yeah, so FTX will uh, probably acquire Robinhood by the end of the year. Five years from now, who's bigger, FTX or Coinbase? Oof. 
what I'm seeing is Coinbase is uh, going full crypto native, whereas FTX is moving away from being crypto native. So Coinbase is going to win crypto. FTX might, might win the rest of the market. Yeah, FTX is really going after the institutional regulatory. They spent over a billion dollars in acquiring licenses last year. It's an interesting observation. I think Coinbase would probably be bigger with Coinbase Cloud and all the other things that, are, that they're coming out with. Uh, their new staking partnership, liquid staking partnership is also super interesting. Um, uh, NFT market. NFT market in the last 30 days is down 24%. Market cap's down 24%. Though that's kind of an arbitrary metric of market cap of NFTs. Total sales is down 26% over the last 30 days. Uh, how much farther, maybe Chow, I'd start with you here. What happens to the NFT market over the next six months, uh, considering the fact that it feels like the NFT market is maybe the last place in crypto that hasn't, the bottom hasn't completely fallen out from it. Yeah, uh, I don't have a strong opinion, but if I had to make a bet, uh, because NFTs are the furthest along the, the risk curve, uh, they're probably going to follow the, uh, uh, the rest and they're going to fall more. And when the market bounces, they, I would like to think that they're going to bounce after the majors. Maybe either for Imran or Chow, why is the NFT market hanging on uh, while the rest of crypto has fallen so much? I feel like, again, this is not a very strong opinion, but I feel like the, the quote unquote blue chip NFTs that, you know, that, that, that really matter, like th their unit price is so high that their holders are fairly price insensitive. Um, so when the rest of their portfolio, like for these people, right, these NFT holders, when the rest, because they're already pretty wealthy, when the rest of their portfolio drops like 30%, you know, it's not going to matter. It's not going to hurt their life. Um, they wouldn't sell their NFTs, right? But if the, the rest of the portfolio crashes to like, I don't know, there's, there's a point at which you start feeling the pain and um, you want to liquidate your riskiest asset. Uh, into the um, the most risk off ones, right? But again, like it's not a super strong opinion. I would also say that um, some of this is being, uh, if you look at like art sales during like the financial crisis and others, um, it hasn't really taken a big hit compared to like asset prices. And I think it's a you know comp there, there's a couple of things reasons for 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 these reasons. One is you know illiquidity. Uh, two is that there is a flight to safety. And people think that art will outlive all the markets and all the volatility in markets. So if you look at like Genre of Art as an example, um, uh, Autoglyphs, uh, even if you look at it today, um, Autoglyphs has done pretty well. Um, it bottomed uh, six months ago uh, at around like 115 ETH and it's roughly at about 189 ETH. Uh, and there was two sale three sales that happened within the past couple of weeks. Uh, and so people are buying the bottom for these like high quality generative art i'd say for the most part like pfps and other like you know uh art i would classify under like community um i think they'll take bigger hits because they're more volatile in nature because they're more speculative in nature as it is um but i do think generative art like fidenzas ringers and autoglyphs will hold value over the long term Last question here, Chow, I'd toss this one to you. The Lido has been on an absolute tear in terms of just the percentage of ETH that is staked in Lido. Today, it's sitting at 32%. A year from now, is this above or below 50% of ETH staked in Lido? A year from now, probably above. Uh, five years from now, probably 
much lower. Why is that? Because the, the market will demand more decentralization. And, um, and just to touch on that is um, there's a company called Oval. Uh, I don't know if you're following them. But Oval essentially allows any validator to uh, that hits a certain threshold to automatically delegate that their excess of assets to other validators uh, through something called uh, secret keys. And so what this means is that, you know, over time, the community will ask for decentralization through, validate, through validators. And uh, Oval is probably best in class in, in order for that to happen. Uh, and so take a look at Oval. They're, they're, uh, they've been funded by Coinbase and us as AllianceDAO and, 